Trump was in the film throughout the whole process, but it went from like cautionary, like what happens if this guy uh, becomes our president? It went from that to being like, oh, holy, <laughs> wow, it happened. everyone, I'm Abby Wright. We're back with our last episode of the year, the last one before we break for the holidays and for the DuPont Awards. Yes, I'm Lisa Cohen, and for those of you who don't know, the DuPont Awards are actually a big part of what Abby and I do at the J School. DuPont celebrates the best in broadcast, online, and documentary journalism, and it's really gratifying to be able to present these awards. And we actually just announced the winners. We'll be interviewing some of them in upcoming episodes of the podcast, so stay tuned for that. But first, today we're bringing you um, yet another timely conversation that speaks directly to our news cycle and this moment that we're in where the press feels like it's really up against the wall, so to speak. We're going to listen to Professor Betsy West in conversation with director Brian Knappenberger after a recent Film Friday doc series screening of his film, Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press. Yeah, it's a, a riveting and chilling film. If you haven't seen it, it's available on Netflix. The documentary details stories of people with power and the resources to try to silence the press, centering on a story that you may remember, we certainly do here, mm -hmm. about Gawker Media, the news and gossip website that was dear to many of our hearts. Um, they released a sex tape of former wrestler Hulk Hogan and were promptly sued and this documentary, you know, follows the, the trial, the madcap zany trial, which played out in Florida. In the end, it turned out that billionaire investor Peter Thiel was actually, unbeknownst to anyone, funding the suit and put so much money behind it. That was part of the reason Hulk Hogan essentially won. He first, you know, was awarded a, like a staggering $140 million, and the case was ultimately settled for $31 million, which, you know... It's a fraction of that, but it did put Gawker out of business, and it was a cautionary tale for other journalists. Indeed, especially in these times of hashtag fake news and accusations against the so-called failing New York Times from the White House, as well as the targeted stings that we've been seeing from groups like Project Veritas, this film lays out exactly how fragile freedom of the press is. So without further ado, Brian Knappenberger with Betsy West, and this is an edited conversation. start off about how how this all happened I understand you didn't really make a decision uh, to pursue this film until after the Peter Thiel uh, revelation so uh, just just tell me what what uh, attracted you and how this all happened yeah yeah I would, well first of all thank you thanks for having yeah. me um, I, I started I was really interested in this in the trial itself I was just really kind of captivated by this bizarre uh, trial going on in Florida between Hulk Hogan and Gawker Media because a lot of my work, you know, I've done work around the issues of privacy uh, in the past and I've also, a lot of my work kind of centers around the First Amendment. So um, first it was, the, it was the verdict, this staggering $140 million verdict that came after the trial and then the revelation that Peter Thiel was funding Hulk Hogan's lawsuit. That, that's when it became, I thought it became a different story then and that's, that's when we sort of jumped in with both feet. Right, so that's the summer of 2016, yeah. and 
what, less, much less than a year later, you were at Sundance. I mean, that's an incredibly fast turnaround for a documentary. That must yes, have been intense. <laughs> yeah. how, how, why did you decide to do it so urgently, and how did that all work? I, it was just a, it, you know, it was a furious year, and, and it, when we just kind of decided to embrace that and go with it. Um, you know, it was, everything sort of seemed to be happening at the same time. Um, you know, th as we're watching this court battle, it was the same time Trump was saying, you know, we're going to, we're pointing at the press and, and ber berating them and, and saying, you know, we're going to open up libel laws and sue you like you've never been sued before. And this way, this way that he kind of hid behind some of the kind of awful things that he said, saying that it was a television blaming the Blaming the media? Blaming I mean, did the media, the, yeah. Did the, did the production change? I mean, as you started filming, you know, in the summer, and then the campaign just intensified and intensified. Yeah. Did it? Did it change your plans of how you it covered did. this? It did. I mean, this film takes some. T the story took some radical turns, and so we, I just kind of decided to embrace that in the kind of structure of it. This has never happened to me as a filmmaker, but it was a radical difference. Uh, the day of the election, that was that was a big deal. Uh, you know, I, I was pretty clear. We went into work that day and uh, watched a rough cut of the film. It was pretty clear it was a different film than, it, than we thought we were making 24 you hours You mean the before. day after the election? The day after you the watched, election. And then how did you change it? I mean, what, what changed? It, you know, a lot, it changed in some subtle ways um, because Trump was in the film throughout the whole process, but it went from like cautionary, like what happens if this guy uh, becomes our president, this guy who is, you know, launched all of these attacks against the press. It went from that to being like, oh, holy, <laughs> wow, it happened. Uh, it was a much different tone, and that even changed, even music cues and stuff felt different. So it, it changed throughout, but, but really the kind of structure and stuff at the end uh, was added after that. It's, uh, you know, a, a pretty favorable view of Gawker's, per, you know, Gawker's perspective on all of this, given the fact that Gawker had a questionable um, uh, right to call itself uh, <laughs> purely journalism in, in some ways. How hard did you try to get the other side of the story? How hard, to try, hard did you try to get Peter Thiel or Hulk Hogan? Uh, I tried to get Peter Thiel quite a bit. Uh, I mean, we, maybe six or seven times. At first, he, so they seemed like they might talk to us, and then they were sort of wishy-washy, and then finally, after many, many tries, they, they said no. We had uh, we'd interviewed him before, actually, uh, but eventually they said no. I would love to have had him in this film, and I would have, you know, I would have treated his position uh, as accurately as possible. So uh, how about for you, how lawyered was this film? <laughs> Well, we're we're used to doing things, uh, you know. With a, a, it was a standard kind of lawyer. I mean, I think we I think we were just a little kind of just ratcheted up a notch for this, but it was the same kind of team that we normally use. Mm -hmm. I mean, were you threatened at all with any kind of legal action during um, the course of this? A couple of times, but not. It never it never came. We have, we haven't been sued, mm -hmm. um, but there, you know, there's there's some elbows thrown. Watching it, you realize like Gawker could have prevented this whole thing. Did anybody make that point? I mean, they really made or allowed bad law to be made by, they could have pulled that video, that tape yeah. down. Why do you think they didn't do that? You know, they got a very tough cease and desist letter. Yeah. Why not just take the safe course 
and take it down. I think two things. I mean, first of all, I was talking to John Cook about when the, he yeah. first saw the film, and he said that he saw that cease and desist letter, and he thought, well, that's a, that's a path not taken. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I had a feeling that some some people within Gawker probably argued for that, uh, but I mean, what's I don't know the real answer. It's probably some combination of arrogance and also uh, a belief that that what they were that that was a newsworthy story and they were going to stick by it. So can you just summarize what's happened to Gawker subsequent to this? Because there was a kind of a settlement and then you know, can you explain that? Yeah. Gawker was forced into bankruptcy immediately uh, by the requirement in Florida law to put up $50 million right away. Uh, that, that, that put uh, Gawker into bankruptcy. It threatened Nick Denton bankruptcy. It basically forced a sale. So they were bought by Univision. There was a period of time that was kind of in stasis where nothing really happened, and then eventually uh, all the parties settled. Gawker itself, uh, the flagship site, was shuttered. Um, Gizmodo, Lifehacker, um, Jezebel, Jezebel. Uh, Jalopnik. Right. Uh, all, of those, all of those sites are now under the Univision. I wonder you know, what your thoughts are about um, why the media has become such a so hated. target. Yeah. 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 Um, well, that's one of the reasons. That's one of the, you know, reasons why I was so kind of interested in this. I think. I mean, because in some ways the media was on trial there. Uh, you know that there, there's you know this hometown hero, you know, and these these uh, arrogant kind of um, people coming in from New York to, uh, you know, that there was a real there's a real kind of culture clash in Florida. So there. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, t the 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 polls are you know if you, if you they they're not good. People say like they hate the media. Although people really really love the media that they consume. They like their it's local a, media. Yeah. They like their anchorman and their local TV station, but they hate the media. Right. Or they love or they love the channel that they watch or the mm -hmm. news or, uh, newspaper that they read. Um, I, I'm not sure why this is right now. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of answers to that question. Um, but but certainly that's that that uh, tension is one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to make the film, uh, and I thought that that was kind of the, the undercurrent of what was happening there, and and tr in the in the courtroom and also on the national stage with Trump. One more thing, I was just I mean I think there, I think as I was saying before, there is legitimate criticism of the media um, that that has gotten too sort of cozy with power, and it's gotten and it doesn't speak for people. So I think there's there's a reason there there is something that fuels that anger. You know, Lisa, there are so many reasons why we are living with these real divisions in the country today and why trust in our press and other institutions has eroded. Yeah, it certainly doesn't help when the president goes after reporters. I would, I would say on a daily basis, but it's more often than that in these you know, early morning tweets. Right, and yet subscriptions to the Washington Post and the New York Times are way up this year. So that's what we have to navigate. There's this real urgency and demand to investigate and hold power accountable. And then on the other hand, there's this need to rebuild trust. Right, and this film really hits on this balancing act and what happens when you throw a billionaire with an agenda into the mix. Okay, back to the conversation between Betsy West and director Brian Knappenberger. Now, questions from the audience, of which there were many that night. It seems that there that there's a lot of there's less hope for um, 
traditional funding models to 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 uh, yeah. to exist in journalism. Do you think that the benevolent billionaire is like a way of the future, hopefully, and that we should just like try and get rich people to get on our side? <laughs> I, I hope that's not the only option. I mean, hopefully we find a, an economic model that, that works, uh, that, that's, that thrives a little bit better than, than that. Um, I do, you know, I, I was, I, was uh, I, I wanted to make sure that we, you know, that we talked about Bezos and we talked about, you know, his, you know, his stewardship of the Washington Post has been by most people's uh, estimation of fairly kind of standard stewardship, but I mean that's something that you have to um, we have to watch. I mean, how does the Washington Post cover the uh, Whole Foods sale, uh, Amazon's Whole Foods sale? And those are that's important to watch to watch that stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm angered by this stuff being done in secret. I'm angered that 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 Sheldon Adelson. I mean, it's I think there's problems with the, you know billionaires and very wealthy people owning news. Um, but uh, it's also been the case for a very long time. Uh, you know, there's probably, hopefully, there's some new economic models that can solve some of that. But um, at the same time, um, you know, the, the, the secretive aspects of this are really kind of what fired me up. I mean, the, the secretive uh, nine-year grudge that Peter Thiel had, the ability that he had to kind of wield the criminal justice system to silence this news organization that he didn't, didn't like in a way that, by the way, in the way that, that was for a long time in, the, in our country's history illegal for him to do this. So um, I don't think it was in this case in Florida, but. Yeah, I mean, he didn't break a law by doing this, right? No, he didn't, but that's a very, and that's one of his defense, and a lot of people that defend him say, well, this is perfectly legal. Well, yes, and that's part of the reason why it's disturbing. But also, it wasn't for a very long time. It was it was illegal. This is a this is a practice called champerty that apparently goes back to like common law, where it's it was for a long time illegal for a third party to to try to um, to fund uh, uh, secretly fund a lawsuit or to make effort to try to extend an existing dispute uh, for their own personal gain. Um, that was illegal, and that was actually overturned. Um, uh, in this sort of segregation era um, at that point. There are still champerty laws, by the way, on, um, on the books in many states. Uh, I think it's only kind of questionable in Florida and in, uh, um, I think it's in uh, Nevada. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of context. Uh, my background is not in journalism, and when I first watched this film was right before I started J school. Uh -huh. um, and I find myself having a very different reaction this time now that I'm, like, considering myself a journalist. And so... It kind of gets me thinking, who, like, what audience do you have in mind when you made this film? Like, what, just because I feel like as a journalist, like, now it's like, oh my God, this is, like, so vital. And mm -hmm. then, like, when I watched it before, I was like, wow, this is a crazy story. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I just, I didn't see, like, why it mattered, and now, like, I get it. And so I'm wondering, yeah. when you made it, like, what were you hoping people would get out of this film? That's, well, first of all, thank you. I mean, I think I, people like you are <laughs> the audience. I mean, you know, um, I, I realized partway through that, like, uh, especially after the Trump election, that, that, that part of what I was doing was just standing up for the fourth estate, trying to articulate why it's important and, and try to point at really modern threats to the fourth estate. So um, I think that's, that's probably the answer to your question. But, but people like you. Thank you for coming here. Uh, I come from India, and a lot of things that you talk about are sort of happening in India, where where corporate interests are, are buying media, and it's not even out in open 
who who's really owning what uh, how, how do you see as the future of of media evolving the billionaires are pretty much snapping up every media company which is out there and now there is this form of entertainment companies being built over uh, media companies where serious journalism is being lumped with a lot of clickbait journalism and all of them is being lumped into these corporations where does media go from there what is your your opinion about it well we're in a very we're in a very uh, vulnerable time right now I think I mean because um, journalism has lost a lot of its traditional sources of revenue uh, which is advertising and so it's lost that to the internet at the same time inequality is so staggering I mean it, and it just keeps kind of getting more pronounced so um, I, I think it's never been a, 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 you know it's never been a more important time for journalism to, to come up and try to find figure out new models and, and to try to make the make the case for why why they're important why they're a vital kind of public interest um, I, I don't think the the real answer to your question is known yet we don't really know how this is going to play out um, but I do think that um, you know it's never been more necessary than than it is right now has been a lot of very good journalism since the election. Yeah, I mean, people like the, the, the Washington Post and the New York Times say that subscriptions are up. Um, and, and yeah, there's been great journalism. I think in some ways there's a legitimate arg a criticism of journalism that it's gotten too cozy with power over time, that it's gotten, you know, trades softball stories for access to power and celebrity. And I think that the beginning of the, if there's a glimmer of hope in the Trump uh, era, it's that you know, people are kind of reminding what what the point was, right? That that speaking truth to power, that sort of push back against power. Um, you know, you felt like people were kind of back on their heels, saying, "How do, how do we deal with this?" And then you kind of you're kind of feeling like, "Oh, right, this is what we're supposed to be. Do this is the way it's supposed to be." Uh, so I, I think there's room for some optimism, actually. Um, after looking at jurisdiction, specifically the fact that. Um, Hulk Hogan was able to sue in his home state of Florida, which I think made all the difference in this case. I'm wondering how you thought this might have been different if, if that law hadn't applied. It's a really important thing. I mean, essentially what you're able to do is state shop for the most, for the, for, for the. Did he live in Florida? He did, that's yeah. his hometown so community. He was able, so yeah. conveniently he lived there. Yeah. Yeah, the journal of, uh, the, the jury was, you know, it's a hometown hero. So. Um, and, I, and I do think that, that that made a big, big difference. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the, kind of, that's the sort of thing where, where that has to be addressed here. People are doing that all over. The story of um, Frank Vandersloot suing uh, Mother Jones. Um, and he was able to, uh, he wanted to sort of, uh, he wanted to put them out of business, basically. He wanted to silence them and for some stories that, that they did about him and, and in the time where he was funding the Romney campaign. Um, Mother Jones just sort of settled all this and, and won this, but he was able to drag them up to, to Idaho, uh, where he lives and where um, he's, he has some sort of control over the mechanisms there. So it's a, it's, a huge, it's a huge problem. My question is about how you structured the documentary and how you decided to do it, because I kept wanting the stuff in Vegas to like link mm -hmm. to the Gorka case. Like yeah. I kept wanting there to be like a really corrupt official who was actually like spearhead you know it was all like one big conspiracy that tied together <laughs> um, so how did you decide to structure it yeah I mean it was a little different for me generally speaking I'm, you know you're looking for a, maybe a single story that goes the distance um, yeah. this all of these stories were happening simultaneously and I thought it represented a trend and the nature of these stories seemed to have these sharp bizarre turns so I kind of 
I, I kind of just embrace that. And was it something about the Hulk Hogan case that was so sensational that made you want to put it first and like grab your Yeah, audience? that's probably fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's probably fair, yeah. yeah. Well, and also it seems to me the Las Vegas journalists are true heroes in a way that the Gawker journalists, it's a little yeah. you know, more difficult to portray yeah. them as crusading. I, I for the right to run a sex tape. Yes, and I think that, you know, look, I've, I, the, some of the, um, it's been interesting, the reaction to this film. It's been very uh, controversial and, and, and sort of provocative to people. And, I, and it's, and, um, you know, first of all, we've angered the, the all right, right? So they, they've, we've fired them up, which is kind of expected. Um, I did get some criticism from, or it's not criticism really, but from, from uh, from places that I didn't expect as much, which was actually other, sometimes even other journalists who said, well, Gawker had it coming. And I always thought that was a, a short-sighted um, viewpoint because there's no reason that Charles Hart or Peter Thiel tactics couldn't be used against um, any other news source. Um, and and the, the sort of chilling effect of a case like this is very real. And, it, and you see it throughout the whole summer. You saw. Um, Kim Masters did her piece recently about um, the Amazon, Roy Price, accused of you know, sexual misconduct, and he, she shot that story around through the whole summer and was everywhere she went. Charles Harder, same guy, went, was, was right there trying to silence her um, the whole time. And so she, and so she reached, actually reached out to me afterwards and said, look, this is the same thing. And, uh, R. Kelly is a similar example, that uh, R. Kelly story through the whole summer, the people would go uh, before the, I think it eventually was on BuzzFeed, but they said that that's the conversation that was happening in newsrooms. What about Gawker, this Gawker effect? So I think um, you see that, I mean, Charles Hart represented uh, Harvey Weinstein. One of the biggest critics of our film is this guy, Lanny Davis, um, represented uh, Weinstein right when, when those charges broke. So this is, this is clearly, uh, something that's happening and resonating through through newsrooms in a way that I think has that's that goes far beyond the specifics of the Gawker case. How do you approach making a documentary that centers on kind of a weird court case? Mm. Like how how do you get access? How much access do you get? Yeah. And uh, how much media law knowledge did you have in advance? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, media law knowledge is just trial by fire for me, <laughs> which, which has now been significant. But um, you know, it's it's interesting the idea of filming in, in courtrooms. I think it should be uh, I think it should be common practice. It's my opinion. Uh, you know, it's courts are meant to be a public. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's that's part of the that's part of the part of the deal. They're public, and a lot of things. Um, you know, a lot of court cases represent issues that are much bigger than the small community that's able to make it to the courthouse. So I actually think that this should be far more permissive. Um, it's all up to the judge, basically. Uh, it's all up to the people in the in the courtroom if they want, if they how much media they allow. Um, we're filming inside a trial now, um, and we have pretty much full access. But it's that's not that's not no that's hard to get. Hi. Uh, you briefly mentioned navigating slightly tricky territory um, once you were t uh, signed on with Netflix. I assume you signed on with them after you showed it at the film festivals. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a bit more about that? And also, did you ever think about the irony of it showing it on Netflix with their big corporate interests and their Silicon Valley connections, considering what you were talking about? Um, 
Netflix is an interesting pl player in this. I mean, I think um, they, uh, I mean, one, one of the reasons, I'll just tell you one of the reasons why I was interested in them as a, as a platform, I thought, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of stories are kind of preaching to the choir, or kind of, there's a lot of talk about people in their own bubble, uh, news bubble, and I thought that Netflix might have a shot to kind of poke, sort of poke through that. Um, a film about Hulk Hogan, it would reach an audience that might not otherwise reach it. So I was, I was interested in that. They have such a broad reach now. Um, I'm critical of Silicon Valley, but Netflix and, and Reed Hastings even is fine with that. Sometimes I'm critical of, um, I've been very critical of algorithms uh, and the way that they kind of, uh, kind of drive the news and uh, specifically Facebook. I think it's, Facebook's a mess, just a complete mess. Uh, and, and, you know, I think they cause a lot of the polarization that we're seeing in our society right now. You know, they say that those, that news feed that you look at, they say that's driven by engagement. Well, but, but that's, what does that even mean? Uh, and they don't, they're not telling us because that's their secret sauce or whatever. But you don't know why one of the, some of those articles go to the top of Facebook and some are buried. And for a platform that's that important um, to, to be that uh, opaque, about, about news and about information. I think it's a real problem. You know, this is the public square now, and it's a public square being run by private companies who also, by the way, can kick you off. There's no freedom of speech on these platforms. You know, Netflix has their algorithm. It's, it's a little more, it's a little more um, innocent seeming to tell you you like you know, Stranger Things or something. But, um, so I, I've been critical of that stuff, but Netflix has been, uh, I haven't heard anything about that from them. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I had a question uh, for the filmmakers, the young journalists in the audience about access. You talked a little bit about it, but um, obviously you didn't get that much access from the Hulk Hogan side or the Peter Thiel side, but you got some Gawker access, and I wanted to just get a little like landscape of that. Was it, it was a very excruciatingly painful time for them. They looked like they were in agony the whole time. I thought like A.J. Deloria was gonna burst into tears the whole time he was on, on screen. How were they? Were they, were they open to you? I mean, you were following them around a little bit. Were they open to that? Were they, did they balk at certain things? Did, did they have a better attitude towards you because they were the media? What was the whole relationship yeah, like? Yeah, they were pretty open. It was a time for them that was very uncertain and, and I think painful. They were just coming to the realization that this was, this was over, really. Um, and uh, I interviewed Nick Denton a couple of times, but one, one was right after, um, it was pretty clear that you know, they were gonna be bankrupt and it was just right after the verdict, so things were kind of raw. It took them a while to kind of see the film um, because they said, John Cook said, I, I think I just had PTSD or something. Like, I didn't want to see it. And finally he saw it and he loved it. But it, um, so uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of that. But I, you know. I, I was wondering whether, um, in speaking with the Gawker people, whether the, anyone would ever discuss the fact that they really hadn't mounted the defense that they could have mounted. Like, they, you know, they didn't bring up the fact that um, Hulk Hogan had lied, that, that they were actually presenting a truth, and you know he'd said he hadn't slept with his friend's wife, and uh, so it was like three major things that they could have said in their defense, and they just ignored that. They just looked particularly arrogant, but as it, it looked like they were gonna lose, like why not use 
they were they were restricted from bringing certain things into the trial. So they they were they were uh, they were not allowed to, to present some evidence. They weren't allowed to, for instance, call Bubba the love sponge to to the stand. Um, who, by the way, said uh, early on um, to to investigators, uh, police, when they were looking into this, that that um, Hogan knew that he was being taped. That so there was lots of different, uh, and then he changed his sort of story later. Um, there were a number of things like that that could have helped with their defense that they actually weren't allowed to bring into the into the case. It just it's just like having you know read about it during the time. It just seemed like. The only thing that came out was just how cluelessly arrogant they sounded in court, and like none of the others saw it. Well, well the deposition, watching. especially. Yeah. I mean, who prepared him for his deposition? Yeah. You don't make jokes at a deposition. Any <laughs> idiot knows that. Like, what was he thinking? Yeah, I think, and and watching hours of the court, I, I, it's a mismatch. It's yeah. a, it's a, they they have they have um, the Hogan side has far. More aggressive. Um, they're, they're, I mean, it's it's it doesn't even seem close. I mean, uh, did it seem that their lawyers kind of underestimated what they were up against? Yeah, or, maybe, or thought yeah. maybe that they would be uh, be able to go to an appeal or something. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, they they it was it was clearly a mismatch. The, the Logan the Hogan lawyers were far more aggressive and I think on their game than than the Gawker lawyers. Well, thank you so much, <laughs> Brian, thank you. for this rousing call to arms for journalists. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much to Brian Knappenberger and Betsy West. So we'll be breaking for a few weeks for the holidays and the DuPont Awards ceremony. And we actually just announced this year's winners, which include This American Life, The Daily from the New York Times, and the documentary 13th from Ava DuVernay. It's a really impressive combination of new and traditional journalism platforms. And we're also excited that this year, Jake Tapper and Gail King will be hosting the ceremony. It's in January. It's going to be a big night. And in the meantime, you can read more about the winners at DuPont.org. And coming up, we are going to be sitting down with several of our 2018 DuPont winners, and we're going to be bringing you conversations with them, learning about how they do their interviews, journalism tips, their careers, and what they've learned. That's our next season of On Assignment. But in the meantime, before we leave, we can't sign off without a recommendation. So do you have something? I just watched something that uh, I keep thinking about, um, the 60 Minutes 50th anniversary show on Sunday. Yeah. It is a great look back at all of the reporting they've done, some of their you know, legendary correspondence, some of the those Classics. classic moments of television news history, um, including a moment I keep thinking about, which is when Mike Wallace sat down with the Ayatollah Khomeini. Right. That must have been in like 1979 for one of his trademark confrontational interviews. With the Ayatollah Khomeini. With the Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, just the uh, the chutzpah of that guy. He was really um, very, he was so talented and did great interviews. Right, but he was, he was he knew how to be confrontational, even the Ayatollah Khomeini. He right. went after him, sort of, right? Well, yeah, he did go after him. I mean, he asked him very hard questions, and that's a tough situation to be in. So he, it's just, great to see 
him in his heyday. So my recommendation is kind of following up on that. I watched, uh, I had a good time watching the 60 Minutes Overtime, which is sort of their behind-the-scenes online packages that they do. And this one was a tour of the 60 Minute offices by executive producer Jeff Fager, someone who I used to work for. And um, I had an office on that floor at one point. So it was very nostalgic for me. He took everybody into his office and showed people this blackboard that he has that's kind of infamous, which is the words that no one is allowed to put in a script. What are some of those words? Um, You can't say uh, society. You can't say experts say. That's a big no-no. Who are these experts? And I actually use it as a teaching tool now in my classes here at the J School. That's something we can all appreciate. Steering clear of vague words. Thanks for that, Lisa. All right. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Asta Chaturvedi with the assistance of our special projects coordinator, Millie Christy Trevaux. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. And thanks for the support from our DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. So that's the last episode of this season. And we want to wish everyone a happy holidays. Tune in in the new year for the first episode of our new season. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.